0: Hello and welcome to Modern American Diplomacy, a podcast exploring the lives and contributions of America's most accomplished diplomats. I'm Ben Reims, recording in Washington, DC, and I'm joined today by my State Department colleague, Danusha Huba.
1: We are looking at, I think, the fight that's gonna determine the future of the world order because there are only two systems, single country ascendancy, which is what we've had since World War II, or a balance of power arrangement. What's wrong with balance of power arrangements? nothing intrinsically, until they become unbalanced, which is what brought us to World Wars. There really aren't any other models out there. So, again, it was Tony Blinken's phrase, famously, the world doesn't run by itself.
0: Today, we're honored to welcome Ambassador Ryan Crocker. Ambassador Crocker served as US ambassador six times in Afghanistan from 2011 to 2012, in Iraq from 2007 to 2009, in Pakistan from 2004 to 2007, in Syria from 1998 to 2001, in Kuwait from 1994 to 1997, and in Lebanon from 1990 to 1993. Ambassador Crocker achieved the rank of career ambassador, the highest in the Foreign Service, and received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian award. The list of other awards include some of the highest from the military, the U.S. Intelligence Community, and the State Department, including one for exceptional courage and leadership, and from AFSA for creative dissent. In fact, the State Department established its own award in his honor, the Ryan C. Crocker Award for Outstanding Leadership in Expeditionary Diplomacy. After joining the Foreign Service in 1971, Ryan Crocker had assignments in Iran, Qatar, Iraq, and Egypt, as well as Washington, D.C., He served at U.S. Embassy Beirut during the bombings of the U.S. Embassy and the Marine barracks in 1983. He has been Senior Fellow at Yale University, a Distinguished Visiting Professor at the University of Virginia, a Distinguished Fellow at the Wilson Center, a Dean of the Bush School of Government and Public Service, and a Diplomat in Residence at Princeton University. One quick disclaimer for Danusha and me. As State Department employees, we are conducting this interview in our personal capacities. And any views we happen to express are our own and not necessarily those of the US government. Ambassador Crocker, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me.
2: We're so pleased to have you with us today. Thank you for making the time. You were born in Spokane, Washington, grew up in an Air Force family, and attended schools in Morocco, Canada, and Turkey, as well as the United States. You graduated in 1971 with a degree in English having spent some time studying in Dublin. So how did your international upbringing influence your pursuit of diplomacy as your chosen career?
1: I had the good fortune to have a significant part of my childhood abroad in French Morocco, as it was then, grades four through six in Newfoundland. And then my last three years of high school in Turkey. What that did was give me a strong predilection to live and work in the international arena. It was really my sophomore year down at Whitman College in the fall. It's one of these epiphanies. I was walking across campus and it suddenly hit me that unless my father was retired, that unless I took my life in my own hands, I would be in Washington State forever. So I asked an underclassman where the school library was, went in and figured out my own junior year abroad. At University College Dublin, I was an English major and they had a fabulously good sub major in Anglo-Irish literature. So that was the moment when I started to make my own way into the world abroad, not depending on my family. I traveled as much as I could after the conclusion of classes in the spring of 1970, I basically hitchhiked from Amsterdam to Calcutta, took three months and nearly killed me, but left an enduring sense that the great world was where I wanted to be. I actually knew what the Foreign Service was. I had knocked on the doors of various embassies along the way to get such things as a letter certifying that I was indeed a student, so I could get a student discount. I think this has changed over the years, but back in that day, the Foreign Service was pretty much the exclusive preserve of the East Coast and the West Coast. If you were in flyover country, You probably didn't even know it was out there. So fall of my senior year, I just threw my hat in to every ring that had international printed on it, Peace Corps, graduate school overseas, United States Marines, and I took the foreign service exam. I just wanted to land somewhere. That was back in a happy day when they could actually process you all the way through in like nine months, passed the written, did all the paperwork that leads up to an oral assessment. Had that oral exam in Seattle the day before I was to fly to Chicago for a Peace Corps staging for a position teaching English in Afghanistan. That was back in a day when at the conclusion of your torture by the oral panel, they told you right on the spot if you had passed or not. And they told me I had passed and they further told me that I could expect an appointment within four to five months. So I expressed my regrets to the Peace Corps, stopped talking to Marine recruiters, informed University College that I would not be back and had a series of jobs to keep bread on the table. That would have been appropriate if I'd actually owned a table, which I don't think I did at the time. (laughs) The job I had settled into was loading a labeling machine in a cannery. And it was on that job when the foreman burst out of his office saying, Crocker, you got a long distance call and they say it's really important. You got four minutes. And this very nice woman said, I'm calling from the State Department. We'd like to offer you an appointment as a foreign service officer in a class beginning of November. We know this is a big deal, a hard decision, and please take a few days to think about it. And I said, lady, no, <laughs> take me. I'm signing up. I've done all the thinking I need to do. Just I'm <laughs> saying yes. Can you take yes for an answer? She did that, and I had the immense satisfaction of walking out of that little office and saying to the foreman, I quit. I did develop an appreciation for what blue-collar work was like, but also no desire to pursue it further.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Ambassador. Following up on Danusha's question, your first assignment would have been to Quram Shahar, Iran, in 1972, which was a relatively small province near the border with Iraq and Kuwait, both countries to which you'd eventually be ambassador. I'm curious to know how you were selected for that assignment, and if that you think was the beginning of a career in what came to later be called expeditionary diplomacy.
1: So the A100 course on assignments operated pretty much like it operates today. An officer was invited to list five preferences and every effort would be made to see that she or he got one of them. I put in for five Middle Eastern posts and got none of them, which was perfectly fine for me. It's 22 years old, single, and anywhere was gonna be a blast. So I entered Spanish training with an assignment to Guatemala. About <laughs> two weeks into that, I had a call from the course coordinator saying that they felt really bad about not being able to give me a position in the Middle East something had opened up, would I be prepared to go to Khorimshar? I said, yeah, absolutely. Told to report to his office first thing in the morning. Hung up the phone, got out the atlas, and endeavored to find out where Khorimshar was. I knew it had to be in the Middle East or they wouldn't have made the call. And there it was on the (laughs) northern tip of the Persian Gulf, just across the river from Iraq. So I switched from Spanish to Farsi and went out on a truly great adventure. Again, there were just three of us, the consul, myself, and then an administrative officer. And our consular district was the whole southern half of Iran, all the way up to the Pakistani and Afghan border. So we spent a whole lot of time not being in Khorramshahr, just traveling around. And a vice consul was, of course, the bottom of the barrel in diplomatic rankings, but for the Iranians at the time, it was a really big deal. So 22 year old me could show up in Shiraz and instantly get an appointment with the governor of the province. On my head it just kept getting bigger and bigger. How way cool is all of this? It wasn't adventure. What it did over a longer term it was give me a strong preference for small posts. And it really wasn't until I was assigned to Cairo in 1987 that I served in a really big embassy. That experience reinforced my sense that I'd done the right thing, concentrating on small posts in the Middle East until I ran out of them.
2: As someone who's spent a good amount of time working on Iran, but never had the opportunity to travel there, I am terrifically envious of your first assignment. I'd like to ask, what led you to become a Middle East specialist? I think you spoke to this a little bit with your A100 bid list, but my question was, did you have a particular interest in the region before your first assignment there, or did it grow based on your experience?
1: It grew out of my high school experience in Turkey. I traveled a good bit in the country. We also got around the neighborhood to Israel, Jordan, Lebanon. And then when I made my long haul through Asia, the time I spent particularly in Iran and Afghanistan, it was a fascinating experience. I just found something about the culture, the people, the geography, very, very appealing. And while Turkey, of course, was not a Middle Eastern country, it it used to own almost all of it, those influences were very visible to me as a student there. So it was one part of the world I had a fair amount of experience in, liked it a lot, and that is why I put in all those bids on Middle East posts.
0: So I'm going to fast forward to another change in region. This is to when you were appointed the Chargé d'Affaires, that's acting ambassador, to Afghanistan in 2002, which was shortly after the U.S. invasion there. So it would have been on you to reopen and take the helm of an embassy that hadn't had a US ambassador since I believe 1983 when the ambassador Eugene Dubbs was kidnapped and eventually killed. So with little in the way of running water or any infrastructure in that embassy, you set about helping a new president, Hamid Karzai, craft a government. And according to reports and open source materials, you were very crucial to our military success To managing various warlords' ambitions and goals, and also able to maintain a subsequent channel of communication with Iranians. In other words, it seems like in this new ill-defined position, you were the crux of a lot of crucial decisions that affected everything about the future of the country. But at the same time, you didn't have control over a lot of other decisions. And one of the things that popped out in my reading was President Bush's axis of evil speech that altered our relationship with Iran. So my question is, what is it like to be thrust into an area where you have such incredible sway as a representative of the U.S. government, but at other time with such limited resources from the government and such limited control over what the decisions are actually in D.C.? And I wonder if that had influenced or changed your idea of how U.S. foreign policy is actually formulated
1: so the way i got there in early january of '02 was interesting i was deputy assistant secretary for near eastern affairs the nea boundary is the border between iran and afghanistan and pakistan respectively iran is nea pakistan and afghanistan are south asian a different mm-hmm. tribe entirely so in the weeks after 9-11, we would watch the South Asia types trudge up and down the hall in front of our offices to one meeting or another. And by October or so, we were saying, boy, those guys are moving way too slow. I mean, if this was NEA, we'd have an embassy and a flag and we'd be halfway down the road to the strategic partnership agreement. <laughs> and it just drug and drug and drug with nothing happening, apparently, on the diplomatic front. So it was the week between Christmas and New Year, after 9-11, I am the sole representative at the front office, and I get called up to Deputy Secretary Armitage's office, and he said with his usual concern and courtesy, Crocker, you need to get your butt to cobble and you need to do it in the next 72 hours to take charge of the embassy. Mm-hmm. So just completely out of the blue, I mean, I had an engagement with the Iranians, as you know, in Geneva and... Various other addresses on Afghanistan that didn't have South Asia experience, but I did have one crucial quality. I think for the State Department was my inherent expendability. We'll send them out, and if it works, that's great. And if it doesn't work, it's no great loss. So I hit the place pretty cold first week in January, just about two weeks behind Hamid Karzai after he'd been anointed by the Lawn conference, and he and I formed a pretty close bond in those initial weeks and months. He had absolutely nothing. The country was a complete wreck. There was no army, no police, no functioning ministries, no functioning hospitals, just absolutely nothing. He was an early riser, as was I, Afghans in general or not. So we tended to get together for breakfast when we were both in town. On the Iranians, we had started in Geneva right after 9-11 continued the conversation in Paris, in New York, during the UNGA. And as it turned out, my principal interlocutor had just arrived in Afghanistan as his country's ambassador. He had been that shadow ambassador for Afghanistan as ambassador to Tajikistan, effectively the Iranian ambassador to the Northern Alliance that the Taliban were never able to completely overcome. So we continued to meet in the office of the UN compound, Laktar Brahimi's office, something we'd pioneered in Geneva and in Brahimi's home in Paris, actually. And we were getting some stuff done. We'd gotten them to agree to transfer an Al-Qaeda figure to Karzai. They couldn't do it directly to us, but to Karzai. And we were just about at an agreement for the rendition to us of, via, again, Karzai. Gulbuddin Higmatiar. they had an house arrest In Hmm. Tehran at the time. So about 2 a.m., my staff wakes me up saying, boss, you're really not going to like this. It was state of the union, adding Iran to the axis of evil. Just parenthetically, I would say that in the history of mankind, no good news has ever been delivered between midnight and 6 (laughs) a.m. Just a few (laughs) hours later, I got an urgent message from my Iranian colleague for a meeting at the UN compound, and I figured he was probably going to shoot me, but that wasn't it. He wanted me to know that in the course of the night, they had pushed Hikmatiyar across the border into Afghan Balochistan. Well, we jumped on that, uh, got a team there just immediately. He was already gone. He had been there, but had left a few hours before, and we could never track him down. He eventually came out of the cold. And I was actually part of those discussions with his son-in-law later as ambassador when he decided to switch sides. But in the interim, I don't really know how many Americans Igmatyar and his faction killed over multiple years. Substantial. I keep these things in mind because for the game players in the bureaucracy slipping in Iran as a member of the Axis of Evil at the last minute, somebody knows about it. That's a really cool, fun thing to do. Put one over on all of those back there and the bureaucratic fights who think it's a bad idea. We'll show them. Well, they don't live in the real world, which is the world outside of the Beltway. Mm -hmm. And they don't even imagine or really think about or probably don't care about the consequences that real people, people who wear our uniform and carry our passport are going to get killed because of this. So that has always stayed with me as one of many good reasons to avoid a Washington assignment. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, that's a perfect example of sometimes the really fraught disconnect between Washington and serving out at posts. Do you have advice about how to manage that? It's something that I think we confront in so many different ways in different circumstances. I'd love to hear
1: your best practices. Well, you have to remember, though, I was just a setup guy in Afghanistan, someone to go uh, organize an embassy lay down the broad lines of a relationship with the new Afghan government and so forth. That was not my main gig, which had been actually and continued to be doing the setup for the invasion of Iraq in 2003. So I was not really in a position where I expected to lay out broad policy guidelines and be part of the interplay there. It's just not the way it works. And even if it had been, quite frankly, at that time, colored far more by Iraq than by Afghanistan itself. The divisions in the administration were so severe that some temporary charge out in Kabul isn't going to change a thing. Again, the DOD knew about the Iranian dialogue I had. It was never a clandestine effort anyway. It was just low profile. And they absolutely just hated it. Tried to get on my team, Hmm. were able to keep them off from that, but they were seized of it. (laughs) I knew it. As I thought about it after the State of the Union, they were just going to find a way to break off that particular channel because it did not coincide with their view of Iran and the world. So that had played out that way, not really a surprise. I'd say one more thing that I think is relevant as well. We knew what the charge to the international community was coming out of Bonn, which was to do whatever we could to empower this temporary Afghan administration to exercise control broadly in the country as much as possible. My military counterpart there, a British major general, John McCall, ranked anyone we had in country. We were looking at the warlords that were still there and the challenges, and we came up with what we thought was a really great idea, which would be to have effectively two air mobile battalions. One of which would be deployed to the four corners, Herat, Kandar, Jalalabad, and Mazar-e-Sharif in company plus size units Mm. to support the governors and serve as a armed presence that would signal to those who did not wish the new administration well, that they were backed up with real firepower. And the second battalion would be in reserve (laughs) to demonstrate that firepower if need be. So we shook hands tapped a little red wine that was still left and retired for the night. He sent his to London, I sent mine to Washington. We both got awakened some hours later, again, bad news only after midnight, <laughs> to say, we will do no such thing. We are diminishing presence, not increasing it, destroy all copies. And if that urge ever hits you again, just go sit under a tree somewhere until it passes. So what we were seeing there really was the first on stage appearance of What I call the Rumsfeld Doctrine, an absolute minimum force to knock off the bad guys, to play no follow on role in any form of state building and to get your military out as quickly as you can.
2: Well, that's a. Perfect lead-in, actually, to my next question, which is about working with our military counterparts. My sense is you've always been an advocate of diplomats developing strong working relationships with our military counterparts. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan created unique environments that allowed diplomats to work side-by-side with their counterparts in uniform and to build those bonds But outside of those unique environments, which have wound down or are winding down, how can we best build those ties?
1: First, it's really important. As I look ahead, I think the future is going to resemble the recent past in the sense of regional conflicts that hopefully do not become global conflicts as we look at Ukraine right now. And they're going to be messy political military affairs. We're just not gonna have the kind of clear cut divisions between what diplomats do and what the military does, say that would have been the case in World War II. It's everybody's lane and it's all messy. And we've simply got to be sure we're being the most effective element that we can be. And that requires a very high level of coordination between the civilian agencies led by state and the military commands. It did start for me early, that first tour in Khorramshahr. We used to do a lot of ship visits with Iran, And I coordinated those, and on one occasion, I was actually invited aboard for an overnight passage from Bandar Abbas up to Bandar Shapur. This is pretty rare. Do not normally find, in this case, a destroyer (laughs) embarking a (laughs) civilian passenger overnight. But again, I was the guy who would introduce them to all of the officials and do the translation and so forth, so I had value added. There was a young ensign aboard, and we turned out to be exactly the same age. This was his first assignment. I was on mine. And we kind of did that young male bro type thing where you're really swaggering around trying to impress or intimidate the other guy. (laughs) And then as dusk settled, we did a refueling in dying light with the refueler maybe a hundred feet away from us, shooting the hoses over and so forth. Well, this ensign was the officer of the deck. The captain was there, but he was in charge. And just watching him with perfect assurance go through the orders, all the things in the manual, conduct a successful refueling. They withdrew the lines and pitch darkness. Well, our little conversation of rivals was over. He won. We don't do things as junior diplomats that can match a refueling at sea operation. But it did give me a sense of, well, this is what these folks do. And I carried it really through my career in some hot places, obviously, later on, but all the way up. and. Our capacity as a foreign service to understand military culture, their capacity to understand us and what the value added is, I think are absolutely crucial to our national security interests now and as far into the future as I can see.
0: You took us down sea level, and I'm going to take us back to 30,000 feet in terms of the military, but also just foreign policy. So you were talking before about your experience living the Rumsfeld doctrine, but also just broadly state building and nation building. And one of the things that strikes me about your experience in NEA, Near Eastern Affairs, and also SCA, South and Central Asian Affairs, is that what links them is their chaotic environments, you're dealing with strife, you're dealing with warlords and tribal and ethnic politics, and there's a need to make high stakes decisions and improvise. So I want to mention something that Paul Richter wrote in his recent book, The Ambassadors, which it's a bit about you, sir, but also about Ambassadors Ann Patterson, Robert Ford, Chris Stevens. So he describes this role that you diplomats were able to provide really for America in conflict zones. He says, the ambassadors understood language and custom and could lead Washington around the blind curves of local politics. They were confidants of local leaders and were able to steer them through crises. They sat with U.S. generals and spy chiefs to decide how to wage war as well as how to end it. When Washington had no plan for dealing with a country on the edge, they could improvise. This style of statecraft did not resemble diplomacy as outsiders imagined it, a decorous pursuit carried on in the gilt halls of foreign ministries and at glittering dinner parties. The FSOs who thrived in the sandstorms and the smoke of battle became known as expeditionary diplomats, end quote. It seems like diplomacy used to be more like that, more wherever the Greeks, the Romans, the Mongols, Ottomans, Persians, wherever they practiced it, they were pushing diplomats into very forbidding foreign lands, some of them never to be seen again. So my question is, is this really a style of statecraft that enjoyed a temporary resurgence in your time with state, or is it here to stay? Or is this just another form of diplomacy that we're going to have to relearn again in a few years?
1: It's a great question. Sadly, I think it's going to be the latter, that we will have to relearn it. Even more sadly, maybe Hmm. we won't because maybe the next big, messy Paul Mill fight we're in is right around the corner. But whatever the pace is, that I think is the diplomacy of the future. It is also the warfare of the future. We could be doing a lot more than we are, I think, for state. It has does in so many ways comes down to resources. The Defense Department and the Services are able to maintain a education and training float where they can send their officers off, not just for, say, a one-year academic stint, but in the case of my Iraq battle buddy Dave Petraeus, through a PhD program at Princeton. This does not happen at state. We okay. don't have the resources. And with respect to civil cooperation, we don't have the resources to second state department officers to DOD. They do. In Iraq, Dave and I would joke that we're running an academy here on civil relations because of the linkages that we put in place. We had something we put together called the Joint Strategic Assessment Team, whose mission was to take a look at the campaign plan of our predecessors, in which they concluded with great intellectual courage that it basically had failed. To look at that campaign plan and then make recommendations to the two of us as to what a new campaign plan would look like. Well, that team was co-led by then Colonel H.R. McMaster and Ambassador David Pierce. Down the line, we had both military and civilian officers who had never really worked in this fashion or with a counterpart from a completely different community before. So we seized every opportunity we could find just to indicate we are joint on this. If we worked closely together and saw that our people did, there was no guarantee of success. And this is fall of 06. I mean, the worst of the worst. But if we did not, failure was guaranteed. So we did a lot of good work there as I was able to do with John Allen in Afghanistan. But it is still not, I think, institutionalized in any way. There is no manual for this. It is best done in the field because it's really hard to do it in Washington. And at a certain point, we're probably gonna have to learn it all over again, painfully.
0: To follow up on that, you're well known as field guy, sir. And you say it's best to do it out there, but do you have any thoughts on how, in your experience, you get those lessons back to Washington, how you penetrate the bubble?
1: Yeah, that's one of the reasons I was a field guy. Everything is a lot clearer when you're out there. And the smoke and dust that really affects judgment, that's mainly in Washington. If you're out there with the real smoke and dust, that kind of rivets your attention. And what you are thinking is not so much, how can I one-up this bureaucratic rival of mine, weaken his position and strengthen my own. That's not how you think when you're out there again and where it turns out they're using live ammunition against you. We had Doug Lute as Deputy National Security Advisor for both Iraq and Afghanistan. I talked to him every single morning. He would then brief Steve Hadley, his boss, and the president, because the president wanted to know what was going on in Iraq that day. So we had the opportunity through Doug Lute's position, and frankly, Doug Lute himself, he was brilliant at it. That was our moment because Doug was continued in that position by President Obama for, I think, at least another year before he went out as ambassador to NATO. That would have been the moment.
2: Well, if I could dial this back from the strategic level, maybe down to the individual level and ask you about leadership in these environments of expeditionary diplomacy and conflict zones Particularly about leadership in these situations that can be certainly adverse and sometimes traumatic. In recent years, we've seen a lot of senior U.S. military officers emphasize the importance of mental health, mental health treatment, including sharing some of their own experiences, handling trauma and other issues. As diplomats, we also often have to deal with a range of these types of experiences, from consular officers who have to notify families of the deaths of loved ones to those who've served in conflict zones, have witnessed civil war, violent crimes, human rights abuses. You've certainly been through more than your fair share of those types of experiences. Do you think there are lessons that the State Department can learn from our military counterparts about how leaders can best handle those types of traumatic situations and experiences, both for themselves and those that are leading?
1: Well, it's a great question. And as you rightly point out, the initiative on this has come from the military with senior officers now prepared to say, this happened to me, and here's why and maybe how you can avoid it. That is a pretty new phenomenon because it does run counter really to military culture, but this is different stuff. When you think of the conflicts of the past, like World War II, unbelievably intense, but over in three and a half years. Well, the conflicts we're in now drag on and on and on. And what you see in so many cases on both the military and the civilian side is that the same folks are showing up for the party because they know how to do this stuff and others don't really want to learn Mm -hmm. and it's insidious that this kind of low-intensity conflict that does just keep going is, I think, actually worse for you than a massive conflict of the past that is over in a relatively short period of time. So it's harder to measure. We certainly had a culture, both Foreign Service and Military Service, that if you're in the fight, you're not going to put your hand up and say, I think this is one mission too many. Others are counting on you. So it's This kind of leadership to say it'll get you. Nobody's immune. And if you're concerned about your troops, military or civilian, then you got to step up and talk about this. Otherwise, you're putting your troops at risk to frame it in that sense. So I would like to think that this is something that could get institutionalized, but you got to get the job done. And in the State Department, that means you're going to turn to the people that demonstrably can do that job. And it's pretty hard to say no. I certainly never did, never really wanted to, but also didn't calculate the stuff builds up. So I would hope that commanders in military and civilian institutions will continue the conversation and make it personal and then make sure that they are doing the things that indicate their awareness of the strain on the force.
0: Thank you for saying that, sir. It actually just prompts me to say, I don't know if we mentioned it before when we were chatting, but Danush and I both served in Iraq together and then I served in Afghanistan.
2: And Afghanistan.
0: And Afghanistan. Okay. <laughs> don't want to leave that on touch. <laughs> But I just remember this vignette of a guy that I knew who was in Iraq and then I ran into him in Afghanistan. You talk about some of the people always raising their hand for the same stuff. And I know Danush saw that so many times, but one time I saw him in DC and he had the portfolio of looking at the bombings in Syria to document potential war crimes. I'd never seen him so shook. He was just looking at photos all day. So it's something about, like you said, the enduring nature of these conflicts, some of the accumulative effects and something about the inescapability of it. So it's very useful to hear. Appreciate that. So I wanted to shift gears also to a management question a little way from geopolitics, looking internally. In recent years, the department has made a bigger push for diversity, equity, and inclusion. So in my short detail to the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, ADST, we focus a lot on the history. So I've noticed a lot of high-profile African-American ambassadors, just to take one group, who I wasn't aware of previously, and part of this is thanks to documentaries, Edward Dudley, Carl Rowan, Terrence Todman. Todman, for example, he also achieved the rank of career ambassador. He was accredited six times, yet few people even know his name. I did not know that first African American female ambassador was in 1965, I think, because a lot of our cohort coming in, as I do, would probably associate Colin Powell and Secretary Condoleezza Connolly's Rises, as the trailblazers. This isn't Necessarily the case. So, I was wondering from your career perspective, when you're looking at diversity in the Foreign Service, did you notice that there were periods of backsliding? In essence, do departments take steps forward and then steps back? And what is the nature of that from your perspective?
1: Well, to a marked degree, I think the Foreign Service, any service, is a product of the society from which it emerges. The Military has led the way on some of these issues, as you know, racial mm-hmm. integration, and more slowly, perhaps, but very meaningfully, given the numbers involved with the full integration of women into the military and opening up all military occupation specialties to women as well as men. It's been really important. I got to the West Point's Thayer Award last year, and I spoke a bit in my remarks about The individual who'd received it the year before me, first woman to achieve four-star rank in the Army, just how important that is. And it's pretty simple. If you're not using both halves of your population to maximum advantage, you really are out there in the international arena with one arm tied behind your back. That's been an article of faith with me for ages. One name you didn't mention among African-Americans was my mentor, Johnny Young. We didn't have a DCM at the embassy in Doha when right, we opened yeah. it, but he was effectively that. And it was my second tour. And he gave me some really, really important counsel along the way that had, I think, a huge difference in later on in my career. I followed that assignment with one to Baghdad. My boss there was Beth Jones. And that is as good as you get, I can tell you, in today's or any day's foreign service. And for those of us below her, she was the buffer between us and a principal officer who could be very, very difficult. She wound up taking a lot of shots from him to defend the rest of us. And I just learned so much from those two individuals early on in my career that the success that I've had, I really attributed to those two mentors. So you got to get to a point where it becomes institutionalized. I've had the opportunity to, again, work closely with some female officers. Pat Butenis was my deputy chief of mission in Pakistan. Went on from that to be ambassador to Bangladesh. We were back for a South Asia chief of mission conference in the fall of 2006, which was when the president asked me to go to Iraq. Well, we were having coffee and she said, so, when are you going to ask me? I said, ask you what? When are you going to ask me to give <laughs> up my embassy and go to Baghdad? And the networks are pretty extensive and pretty scary. Nothing is secret. And I said, So how about now? And she said, Okay. (laughs) And again, such successes I had in Baghdad owed a tremendous amount to her. There was one particularly memorable moment when the two star chief of staff for Petraeus' office arrived, big marine, and was heard to remark to someone that he was seeing the DCM on the next day and said something along the lines of, well, I'll show the little lady what Marine generals are all about. Well, I passed that on to Pat, she nodded. And then I found it necessary during that meeting to walk past the closed door to get to the photocopy machine. I didn't really know how to operate it, could look convincing. And all I was hearing was, yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes ma'am. And she just had fun doing it. So it's those kinds of individuals who are going to make the critical strategic difference for us.
2: Thank you so much for that, sir. I would be remiss here if I didn't ask you a question about work-life balance. And if you'll forgive me, I raise it because it's a question that is routinely asked of professional women, including the most senior female leaders, like the ones that you've been talking about, but seldom asked of men at any level, usually. So do you think it's important to strike a balance between career and life outside of it, or do those meld more closely in your mind? And if you struck that balance, how did you do it? And in any case, do you have advice for the next generation about how to navigate that challenge?
1: Yeah, that's a terrific question. Now, in my own case, the mission was all-consuming. I wouldn't Know how to have a good time, actually, or trying to strike a work life balance just didn't compute. Again, I'm part of the shut up and march school of mentorship. You just do it. I can't say I always derived pleasure, but there was space within executing the mission tasks and missions that I looked forward to and took great satisfaction in, but never had kids. I mean, that wasn't going to work. It's just, I guess, the way I was wired. And on the female side, I Haven't talked to her about this with Beth Jones. I think when her first child was born, she clocked out on Thursday, had the baby Friday, and was back in the office by the following Wednesday. And that is exactly (laughs) what you don't want to have if the real stars, which she was clearly at that time rising, if that's the way they're doing it, well, that's the way you've got to do it. So it's like admitting that as a senior officer, you can get overstressed. You've got to say, look, there's nothing that I signed that said I can't have kids. So I'm going to have kids and I'm going to do it the right way. And that means I am going to take a significant period of leave. So I'm hoping that we're going to see that change brought about by women themselves who will not say got to be back in the office the day after tomorrow, but will say that as a female leader, this is the way to do it. So we've certainly come a distance. We certainly have a distance to go.
2: Well, thank you for that. I certainly appreciate the encouragement toward that end. If I could continue in the line of questioning about management challenges, I will say as someone now in a middle management position, I find I spend a lot of my time focused on how to develop and promote the next generation of foreign policy professionals And as a six-time ambassador, I'm sure you've had plenty of experience identifying the best and brightest among the next generation of leaders in the department. So what are some of the qualities that you look for in rising leaders? And what did you do to mold and create opportunities for them?
1: Well, this is why generational change is not only inevitable, it's good. Because my approach to that was, and NEA has always been good at talent spotting, to look at individuals first or second tour and if you think they've got the makings of being an NEA leader of the future you get them into the right kind of jobs and in NEA the right kind of job is the place where again your adversaries are using real bullets so there needs to be a change of culture that I would never have been capable of doing on my own I just was hardwired into that approach here am I send me My wish list, Baghdad, Beirut, and Kabul. I saw that again in my own mentoring as a chief of mission. I had a brilliant young officer. You may know her, Tina Tran. She was also in Baghdad. Her first assignment was Islamabad, and she asked if she could see me about her next assignment. And what she had to say was that, look, I really want to go to Iraq, and junior officer division really doesn't want to send me there. They want me to go somewhere nice and friendly. Could you pull some strings? Well, I did, because that's the kind of woman I'm looking for here for the future of the service. There was a special moment, though. I was sworn in in Baghdad. I relinquished authority in Islamabad in the afternoon and assumed it in Baghdad that night. Well, she held the Bible and administered the oath. And her own background is that her parents were Vietnamese, and she felt that this country had given them a new life. And she wanted to give back. And this is the way she could do it. But following Pakistan with an Iraq tour, I did the same thing myself. You may be adding too much stress too early to take that step back, to look at the whole experience. I think that not only should it be the direction of the future, I think it already is. But that is not going to be done by someone like me. And that's, again, why in this case, generational change is not only inevitable, I think it's positive.
2: Yeah. You've touched on something there with Tina's story that I think is really wonderful about people who come from immigrant backgrounds serving. Mm -hmm. I had a wonderful boss years ago, Holly Holzer, who, when we had a farewell party for her, asked those assembled, what led them to this career? And I was struck by how many of us had a similar story of coming from immigrant families and wanting to give back and to serve for that reason. So I'm always heartened to hear similar stories like that.
1: Yeah. And just parenthetically here, but I do think it's important. So Tina got out of the service. She wanted to have kids, married to a foreign service officer. If we're going to be competitive with other employers, we've got to make it easier for folks to come in step out, and then come back in. Because again, it's the way the country is going. You don't sign up in advance for a 30-year career anymore with a single employer. There's a lot more flexibility, and I think that is a good thing to have private sector as well as government experience. But as an institution, we've got to find a way to make that easier, certainly than it is now. That's also part, I hope, of generational change.
0: I want to try to pivot or allow you to opine a little bit on our geopolitical situation now having devoted so much of your time to the middle east and and the surrounding areas you were ambassador three times already before 9 11. now we're looking at an era where presumably our role in the middle east may be different i will let you answer that and we're also facing new geopolitical threats emanating from russia and china so given our recent withdrawal from Afghanistan, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts in general on our geopolitical position and how we may have to adapt.
1: Well, it's the cosmic question, isn't it? And a hard one to answer. So we've been through the hundred year commemorations of events in and around World War I. And it's, for me, instructive to think back to that time America's first major involvement on the world stage through our participation in World War I, and what happened after. You had Woodrow Wilson there, of course, at Versailles with his 14 points, ready to use decisive American participation in the war to bring us to the global stage in the peace. Lloyd George and Clemenceau had a different idea. They'd already divided up the Middle East between them with the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916 taking over the Ottoman lands in the Middle East. They did not want this upstart America messing around in their own backyard. And of course, we had the elections that returned a solidly isolationist Senate so that the League of Nations treaty was never ratified and we never participated. So 20 years roughly of an armed truce between two halves of one awful world war. The outcome of World War II, of course, politically completely different. During the conflict itself, Roosevelt, seeing that we would have to lead in a post-war order, in fact, would have to create one. So you had the San Francisco Conference for the United Nations, the Bretton Woods Agreement on shifting the world from the gold standard to the dollar standard, NATO. We created the institutions of the new order, and we were prepared to lead that order. In the Middle East, February 45, two years before his death, Roosevelt made the long haul out to meet with Ibn Saud on the deck of a U.S. destroyer in Great Bitter Lake. And the visuals told it all, oil for security. And for the next three quarters of a century, we basically led the world. First in the Cold War, but then post-Cold War, that leadership continued. It was not always perfect. Certainly, but at the same time, there was no new global conflict. We're now, I think, moving into the next phase, whatever that is. As successive presidents, thinking here of Obama and Trump, have effectively said, we don't want to run the world anymore. It's costly. Others are simply hanging onto our coattails and losing our largesse to protect them while they underfund their own security contribution. President Biden campaigned on a pledge that America is back in the world. Well, that wasn't quite what he demonstrated in Afghanistan, to say the very least. Now we've got the Ukraine situation. And just as he did just about everything wrong that could be done in Afghanistan, he's done just about everything that could be done right in Ukraine, in my view. And obviously the world is watching our adversaries as well as our allies. Can he sustain it? can he keep a global coalition together can he outlast putin because we are looking at i think the fight that's going to determine the future of the world order because there are only two systems single country ascendancy which is what we've had since world war ii or a balance of power arrangement what's wrong with balance of power arrangements nothing intrinsically until they become unbalanced which is what brought us to world wars so Again, it was Tony Blinken's phrase, famously, Hmm. the world doesn't run by itself. Well, the Biden administration, having then done exactly the opposite in Afghanistan, now have a chance to demonstrate what a reassertion of American leadership looks like. And so far, it looks pretty good in the sense that clearly Biden's primary aim here is keeping that coalition together. More important by far than any single step directly Hmm. related to the conflict. Can you keep all your allies with you in a long-term endeavor? So I feel at least provisionally encouraged by the way things are going. I fear greatly if we decide we really are done as a world leader, because again, you default then to a balance of power system, and that has, to say the very least, not worked well in the past.
0: Ambassador Crocker, on behalf of all of our listeners, sincere thanks for joining us today. This episode was brought to you as part of the Una Chapman Cox Foundation project on American Diplomacy and the Foreign Service. The Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, or ADST, manages the podcast series. If you're interested in exploring a career in the State Department, please visit careers.state.gov. To find out more about the practice of U.S. diplomacy, please visit UC Cox Foundation or the American Academy of Diplomacy. Please rate and review this podcast so that other folks interested in foreign policy and careers in the State Department can find us. If you have any questions or suggestions, please contact info at ADST.org. Thanks very much.